So we're coming to the end now of this uh, studies in this chapter, to the last part of it. As I've looked at this chapter, I've uh, been struck on several occasions with the uh, similarities, connections in some ways with the book of Malachi. Uh, a couple of weeks ago I quoted that end, last few verses of Malachi, where Malachi says, um, turn your hearts to the Lord, or I will come and strike the land with a curse. Just a, a little bit earlier in the book of Malachi, we find this passage. See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. So... We're reading the words in Matthew 23 of the words of that messenger of the covenant and whom the teachers of the law claimed to desire but were finding his com coming much less comfortable than they had expected. And as we said, this is Jesus' last public address and it consists of basically of these six or possibly seven woes, as I say, depending on how you count them. And we've looked at most of these now, and we're coming now to the last woe in verses 29 to 31, where Jesus talks about those who um, decorate the tombs of the righteous of the prophets and yet are the sons of those who um, killed those very prophets. And with these, this last woe, Jesus starts to draw his discourse to a close, and the threads of the argument are brought together into this final passage, a final condemnation, but also, in a sense, a final appeal. And the closing argument here is actually quite complex and interwoven, and I want to just pick out a few of these threads of what Jesus is saying in this final part of, the, of his sermon. But uh, in order to do that, we need to look at a few, uh, just to sort out a few textual issues before we can dig in a few issues of the text. So I just want to do that briefly. We'll look at some of the words. We'll look at the words for children and we'll look at the words for teacher. But I suppose before we do that, we need to answer the obvious question is, who is this Zechariah that Jesus accuses them of murdering in the temple? Um, because it's not entirely clear. Zechariah was a very common Jewish name. Which one is he talking about? And I think the simple answer is we can't really be sure. I think the most likely possibility is he's talking about Zechariah the prophet, the minor prophet. Because his father was indeed called Berechiah, as, we, as you can see if you look in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. And Zechariah was one of the last of the prophets, which would relate to verse 31, where he says from, um, Jesus says from Abel to Zechariah. 
The, the main objection to the view that this Zechariah the prophet is there's no actual record of this Zechariah being martyred. But of course, just because it's not recorded in the scripture doesn't necessarily mean it didn't happen. Maybe there was some other record at the time which has now been lost. And I would probably go with the view myself that the Zechariah here is um, Zechariah the prophet. But there have been an, another couple of suggestions or various suggestions. Um, in 2 Chronicles 24 verse 22, there is talk of another Zechariah who uh, was indeed murdered in the temple courts. Um, the problems with taking this as the Zechariah is first of all that his father was not called Berechiah, as you can, if you look at the passage you'll see. And another objection has been raised to this is that this Zechariah was murdered um, quite in the time of the kings before the exile. And so when Jesus says from Abel to Zechariah, that might seem a bit strange. Although some people have pointed out that in the Hebrew Bible, 2 Chronicles is actually the last book. And so when he says from Abel to Zechariah, he could be talking not so much in chronological terms as throughout the span of the Old Testament. So that's another possibility. And of course the third possibility is that he's referring to some very recent event, some very recent murder at the time of, which was known both to his hearers and to Jesus himself, but it has not otherwise been recorded in history. So we can't really be say with certain whom uh, Zechariah was, other than he stands for one of these people, one of these righteous who have indeed been murdered in the place where they should have been safe and received in the temple itself. Whatever is the exact meaning of this Zechariah, the point is clear that all that blood spilt under the old covenant was to come and be visited on these hypocrites, verse 35. And why particularly that is, we'll, we'll see as we go through a bit. Um, it's worth just pausing briefly to look at some of the words that are used for children here, because we'll need to pick that up later. In verses 15 and 31, which just talks about sons or children, the word huios is used. And that is just a general Greek term for a child. But in verse 33, when it talks about brood, the word is genema, which carries the idea of um, you know, the ancestry. So brood is a fairly good translation. Genema is usually, not exclusively, applied to animals. And as he's talking about serpents here, he uses that form of it. So brood is a good translation. But it slightly hides the fact that in verse 36, when he talks about generation, this generation, there's the related word genea, which is almost the equivalent word, um, but applied to humans, it means those who have a common race, a common ancestry. So it's just worth pointing that out. And more importantly perhaps, because unfortunately our NIV translation is not particularly helpful here, we need to think briefly about the words that are used for teachers. Actually the, the common 
everyday Greek word for a teacher is didaskalos. And that's the word that is usually used by Paul. But in fact is not used by Matthew at all in this chapter. And as far as I could see when I looked, is not actually used anywhere by Matthew for a teacher. But in this passage, there are three other words that are used which have the general meaning of a teacher, but are rather more specific. And it's worth just looking at those. And so in verse 8, if you look, you'll see that there are two words used, rabbi and master or or teacher. The word rabbi, of course, is um, a word of Hebrew origin. It's just been sort of transliterated into the, the Greek here. And the actual Greek word, kathagetes, kathagetes, actually means more or less the same thing, the one that's used for master or teacher, and the one that that word is used again in verse 10. And the meaning of that is particularly um, a spiritual leader, a master, a guru, as we might say. And perhaps it's in, in that sense that Jesus says, indeed, that we have only one teacher, There is only one author of the teaching, and that is the Christ himself. And uh, so that that is the word that's used at the beginning of the passage for a, a teacher. But the word that's translated teacher in the repeated formula, woe to you teachers of the law, that formula that's repeated in verses 13, 15, 23, 25, 27, and 29, is actually the word grammatus. And crucially, I think, this word is used again in verse 34, where Jesus says that he's going to send them teachers. And the word grammatus actually doesn't really quite mean a teacher. It's quite a hard word to translate. The literal meaning of the word is a scribe or a secretary, somebody whose job it is to write. Now, we perhaps don't think of scribes or secretaries as being particularly important, but of course, in a a world where a lot of people were illiterate, the scribe or the secretary, the writer, was an important person. And of course, you can't write unless you can also read. And you couldn't copy the works of the law unless you also read them. So the term had come to mean a scholar, a pundit, an expert. And so some translations translate it experts of the law or teachers of the law or something like that. Although I say the literal word there is a scribe. But they were experts in the law, and so, for instance, in Matthew 2, verse 5, you needn't look it up, but if you remember, when the the Magi came to Jerusalem and asked where the baby was to be found, who did Herod consult? He, He consulted the scribes, and they looked in their books and said, yes, he's to be found in Bethlehem. They were the experts in the law. They were, if you like, the sort of Google or Wikipedia of the day, if you wanted to know some information about the law, you'd go along to a scribe and he'd find the right passage for you and and tell you about it. And as I say, it's crucial, I think, that this word is used again in verse 34. 
means a scholar or a pundit or an expert. So having said that, let's draw some of these threads together. And so I'd like to divide the passage up in this way and, and look at it in this way. First of all, we'll look at this question of parentage. And then we'll look at this question of judgment, why Jesus says that the guilt of all of the um, all that blood spilt in the Old Testament would come on this current generation. And then we'll look at those covenant messengers which Jesus tells us he's sending. And then finally we'll move on and look at the final appeal and the final um, words to Jerusalem, the city that he says will be desolate. So let's look first of all at this question of parentage because there's actually a lot in this passage about parentage. Parentage. The Pharisees claimed to be the children of Abraham, the heirs of the covenant, the heirs of Moses and yet Jesus describes them as lawless in verse 28. He says, yes, you decorate the tombs of the prophets. That's what this woe is. You teach teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites. You decorate the tombs of the prophets. But who's actually buried in these prophets, in these tombs? It is indeed those prophets whom their ancestors had murdered. And they say, well... If those prophets were alive today, we wouldn't have done it. But of course, there's this very heavy irony here in Jesus' words because he's saying that's exactly, that's exactly what you are going to do. By your own testimony, you are children of the prophet killers. That's whom your ancestry is. Those who killed the prophets and buried them was very happy to talk about them in the past tense but didn't actually want to do what they say and Jesus has earlier described them and repeats it again in verse 33 as children of hell and the word actually here is not the Greek word Hades but again the Hebrew word Gehenna which is literally the rubbish tip it's the uh, the tip, the place where the refuge was burned. And Jesus is saying, you're children of the rubbish tip, only fit to be burned. The place where nobody wants to go, where the refuse is thrown. And then he describes them, doesn't he, as a brood of vipers, as serpents. And that's worth, I think, thinking about for a minute because we sort of think of that and we think of, uh, of Raiders of the Lost Ark and the serpent pits and the viciousness of serpents and so on but I think perhaps he's actually saying a little bit more than that he describes them as children of snakes the brood of snakes and who in Hebrew thought is the father of snakes the great serpent it's Satan himself, isn't it? 
And what was that prophecy in Genesis 3? That the seed of the serpent would bite the heel of the seed of Eve, children of Eve. And now Jesus perhaps is saying that time has come when indeed the children of the serpent will indeed bite the heel of the one whom God has sent, the son of Eve, the one whom, the second Adam, who was God has sent to the fight. And now the time has come for the seed of the serpent to do their worst, to make that bite. Everything up to then, as it were, all this killing of the prophets in the old covenant was just skirmishing. Now it's time for the crucial battle, the crucial time, the crucial confrontation. And so Jesus goes on to talk to them about their blood guilt. This is the time of critical judgment. Jesus says, you inherited the sins of your fathers. You are their true descendants. And who's going to save you from the scrap heap? Malachi's curse to bring a, a curse on the land if they would not repent was about to come to fruition. And yet it's also true, as the scripture says, that a person dies for their own sin. And so they are given one more chance at grace before there is the crowning rebellion. They're about to kill that very messenger of the covenant whom they claim to desire. But even that isn't quite the end of it. You might remember that even as he was being crucified in Luke 23:34, Jesus prayed that the Father would forgive them they didn't know what they were doing even then there was still one last chance of grace and perhaps they had to wait for that generation to die there was as it were perhaps one more generation a sort of transitional time about 40 years a bit less than 40 years between the crucifixion and the final desolation of the city in Jerusalem a final transitional time of grace. And a few of them, like Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, would indeed grab that final chance, as it were, describe himself as the worst of sinners. But most of them wouldn't. Most of them would not do that. And so how would that be worked out? So who's going to make this final call to repentance? Who is it? Well, we have this fascinating verse 34, and the more I look at this verse, the more fascinating I find it. Because Jesus is sending the messengers. And they are sent. The word is apostello, from which we get the word apostles. The word, interestingly, is in the present tense. The verb is in the present tense. Not I'm going to send you, but I am sending you. And yet it does seem that they are sent, perhaps, the sending refers perhaps to after Jesus' departure. 
the threat that they would die and be crucified and otherwise be maltreated, thrown out of the synagogues, followed the death and crucifixion of their master, the rejection of their master, of Jesus himself. So who is Jesus talking about here? Well, he surely can be talking about nobody but the apostles and evangelists who took out the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. Yet the intriguing thing in this verse 34 is that they're described in Old Testament, Old Covenant terms. We talk about apostles and evangelists and, and te pastor teachers as the New Testament generally does. But in this case, and as far as I can think, uniquely in this case, they are given their equivalent Old Covenant titles. And so it's worth looking at who these people will be and what their role is to be. Because these were the messengers of the Old Covenant. And they are, they are threefold. Told there are prophets and sages, wise men and scribes. We just think, don't we, that we know about prophets and we think there are lots of prophets in the Old Testament, which of course there are. But we forget perhaps that the importance of the wise and the scribes. We have a lot of the uh, uh, Old Testament was written not by prophets but by the sages, by the teachers of wisdom. And it's brought to us by the scribes. They were the ones who wrote it down and preserved it after all. So what was the role of these messengers of the covenant? Well, the role of the prophet primarily was to call the people to covenant obedience. They did, of course, predict the future, but only that, really, to remind the people of the need to remain obedient to the covenant. So we could take an example of that when David committed adultery. Whose job was it to go and say to him, no, you've, you've done wrong here, you've got to repent. It was the job of Nathan the prophet, wasn't it? I'm sure he found that fairly stressful, to put it mildly. <laughs> he'd known Nathan, for, he'd known David, I'm sure, for many years, and they probably had a working relationship. But he had to come to David and say, Look, you've been disobedient. He put it in terms of a parable, didn't he? A story to. And to soften the blow as it were but that was Nathan's job that was the prime job of the prophet was to call the people back to covenant obedience but what was the role of the sage the wise man as one wise man described as listening to his words was like listening to the words of God himself that's one of David's advisors what was the role of the wise man as a messenger of the covenant well, let me read you just the opening verses of the book that is precisely about that, which is the book of Proverbs. And this is the introduction to the book of Proverbs that explains what the book is there for. And he says the following. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. And why is he recorded them? They're for attaining wisdom and discipline for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, 
doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. The role of the sage was to bring people to covenant understanding. It wasn't just to be a, a blind obedience, as it were, a, you know, just following the rules, which in a sense is what the Pharisees were kind of doing. They were kind of trying to follow the rules in a rather blind way. But the role of the sage, the wise man, was to promote understanding. And remember, one of the woes we looked at was, it says, it, the one about um, these oaths. You know, what you're saying simply doesn't make sense. You, you missed the point. You haven't understood it. And the wise man is there to bring understanding and wisdom. And the third messenger of the covenant that Jesus gives here is the scribe. And the primary role of the scribe was to record and bring to the people the covenant law, the words of the covenant. We mentioned a, a couple of weeks ago this issue of the key of David, the one who has the key to knowledge. And um, the first person of whom that said was given the key of David was Eliakim, uh, a government official. And he appears to have been a scribe or secretary. Another important scribe was Shaphan, the son of Azaliah. In the time of King Josiah, the best perhaps of all the Old Testament kings, Josiah was described as such. There was none who gave his heart more to the Lord than Josiah. But he'd been re oh, Josiah had already been reigning for 18 years when in the temple was discovered the scroll of the law. And whose job was it to bring that message to Josiah, to read it out to him? And I'm sure as he did it, perhaps to interpret it, that was the job of Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the scribe. And of course, who is the most famous, I guess you'd say, of all the Old Testament scribes? The only one that has an actual book named after him. And that is, of course, Ezra. And he was the scribe who read the law to the returning exiles. When the people came back to the land from the land of exile, Ezra was the one who had studied all the law had kept, as it were, the memory of it alive, had kept the study and presumably literally preserved the scrolls and writings, taken them with him into exile, made sure they were kept safe and copied and then brought them back. And when he came back to the land, he was the one who read all the words of the law out to the people. Ezra 7 verse 10 says the following, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. 
As Malachi makes clear, Jesus himself is the covenant messenger, the one who embodies the whole of the covenant. And even in this passage here, we can see it, can't we? We can see how he fulfills the role of the prophet as he calls the people to repentance and obedience. We can see how he talks about parables and illusions and even riddles which require thought and are designed to elicit understanding. And here he reminds them of the law and reminds them the words of the law and what the law is really about. Jesus is, we talk about him as being prophet, priest and king, but we forget perhaps that he is also the wise man and the scribe, wisdom and the scribe, the teacher of the law. But Jesus is going to be taken away from them. And so he sends out other messengers. And I've said the New Testament preachers never use these categories of themselves. And I don't think perhaps we need to worry about saying who exactly is a, a prophet or scribe or whatever. But the gospel message certainly involves all these, doesn't it? People must be called to repentance and obedience. In that sense, we still need prophets. They must be provoked to wisdom. And in that sense, we still need wise men. And that wisdom must be on the basis of the study of the word of the Lord, because it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. And so we know, need those who teach the word who remind people of what the word of God says. And so I found it fascinating that here, and I say, I think here uniquely, but here, in this context, Jesus describes the apostles and evangelists and teachers in these Old Testament terms as prophet and sage and scribe. Because... If we claim to teach the whole counsel of God, then all these things need to be present. We do need to, we mustn't neglect any of them. Because if we do, we actually distort the covenant and we're not true messengers of the covenant. But there is also, of course, in this particular passage, there's a heavy irony here. Because it's those who claim to be the heirs of the prophets and the wise men and the scholars of the law whom Jesus is condemning here. That's what he's saying, isn't it? So you haven't done the job. You claim to sit in the seat of Moses, but you haven't done it. So I'm going to send new ones. And they'd turned the law, hadn't they, to be into externals. They neglected the fact that it was about justice and mercy and made it about just external things. And so Jesus says, okay, if that's what you think the law is going to be about, then you will be judged by your actions. The very things you're going to do now will show you to be lawbreakers, to be covenant breakers, to be inheritors of Malachi's curse, those who claimed to 
be desiring the messenger of the covenant but were not able to endure the day of his coming and so he says they will be judged by what they do by the fact that they indeed bite the heel of the seed of Eve that they will indeed kill Jesus himself and kill the prophets and wise men and scribes who come after him they will indeed be shown to be not the children of Abraham but the children of the snake the children of the serpent by the very fact that they do their hypocrisy what is hidden what they were hiding in their hearts would eventually find its way out and be shown in the things that they did and the violence of their reaction and so we need as we think about these things we need to remind ourselves that it is Jesus who is the, the pattern not the Pharisees we shouldn't be going about these thing, what, things in the way that the Pharisees and the, those scribes did they did have a certain learning those scribes they did know where to find things in the scriptures but they were not faithful teachers of the law we need to have a different heart a different understanding so Jesus closes this last public sermon with this description of the desolation of Jerusalem actually in chapter 24 he gives the disciples some more instruction about the coming judgment on Jerusalem but that's to the disciples his followers the apostles in public these are his last words this is where he finishes the sermon as it were and who is his appeal to it's not to Nineveh it's not to Babylon it's not to Sodom or Gomorrah it's to Jerusalem Yerushalam the city of peace the citadel of the king and you might compare Jesus' attitude to that of Jonah because Jonah rather hoped that Nineveh would not listen to his words and that the judgment of God would come upon the city and yet Nineveh didn't kill its prophet they listened but it's Jerusalem that kills prophets those who should be welcoming them Jesus said earlier a prophet is not without honour except in his own country and uh, again Jesus himself and Paul and others say where else should a prophet die but in Jerusalem <laughs> actually Paul didn't die in Jerusalem he died in Rome but uh, the thought was there he was arrested in Jerusalem it wasn't Nineveh that kills the prophets but Jerusalem the city of God there's a longing here isn't there we get this almost slightly comic image of the the fussy hen trying to collect its chicks under its wings why is it doing that to protect protect them from the predator the fox or perhaps in this contact the snake who's out to get them but the chicks won't come 
Their mother calls them, but they won't come. No, there's no danger. We're fine as we are. And so what happens, the nest is robbed and the city is desolate, as Jesus says in verse 38. And then he says, you will not hear from me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which, as I said, is a quotation from Psalm 118. It's the song of the conquering king, the one who says, open the gates because I have conquered. And when we hear those words, our thoughts are drawn to the triumphal entry and say, is this what Jesus is talking about when he came on the donkey? Um, and the people did, in say, but did indeed say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But check the chronology here. <laughs> this speech takes place in Holy Week. That entry into Jerusalem on a donkey has already occurred when Jesus says that. It's in Matthew 21, I believe. Yeah, Matthew 21, verse 9. So Jesus is not talking about that time when they say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's talking about another coming and surely he can be only talking about the time when he returns to the new Jerusalem as the conquering king. Where it tells us in uh, Revelation he arrives not on a donkey but on a war horse as the victor. There is no hope for the old Jerusalem that is heading for destruction. But only in the city of God is hope to be found. And indeed, the city was destroyed, and on say on the basis of the prophecy of verse of chapter twenty four, Christians who were still in Jerusalem fled the city at that time because Jesus had prophesied that the city would be destroyed. But that was all done and dusted in AD 70, wasn't it? So is this only of historical interest to us? Does it really matter now? We can look back at it and say, well, yeah, I can see how that worked out for the Pharisees and those scribes, but that was 2,000 years ago nearly. Is it only of historical interest? But if you do look into Matthew 24, Matthew 24, verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples that the destruction of the temple, in fact, is just the beginning of the birth pains. And while it was true that during those, particularly during those years before the destruction of the temple, then the, um, uh, the apostles and evangelists were indeed uh, arrested and killed and put out of the synagogue, but that's only was the foretaste of judgment. Jesus has not yet come to that cry of blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is still much struggle to endure before the final judgment comes. The Pharisees themselves may be long dead, but there are plenty of spiritual heirs, aren't there? There are many who claim to sit in the seat, not of Moses, but of Jesus, who claim to be the master teacher, only they pay little or no attention to his actual teaching. 
And there are plenty of those who try to make the gospel easier, more palatable, slightly different. You know, you don't worry about swearing by the temple, you can swear by the gold of the temple. Just make, make the words of God just mean something slightly different to what they're supposed to mean. Easily done. Just a slanted a bit. They try to make the gospel, as I say, more palatable, easier for people to accept. But what they do, in fact, is make it impossible. They simply make people, as Jesus said, into sons of hell, deceiving them so that they're only fit for the scrap heap. The result of their hypocrisy is just the same, isn't it? The hearers become disillusioned and cynical. They reject the message and they will not flee to safety. And so they become, again, the prey of the serpent. The world changes. The world has moved on 2,000 years. We don't need scribes, in a sense, to copy the scripture now. We have movable type and the internet. And we can have access to instant information but although the world changes, the gospel does not and cannot be changed. Because that final cry is still not, has still not occurred. We're still not saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as the victor. The themes of the gospel remain the same. Justice, mercy, faith. The justice of God in wrath poured out of the sacrifice, on the sacrifice. We were thinking of that this morning, weren't we? How many teachers would love to do away with that? With, what was it one person described it as? as oh, that's, that's cosmic child abuse. But to do that, to try and make it more palatable, is to destroy the gospel itself. The whole point of the gospel is that God is angry with sin God cannot look on sin and so there has to be a mechanism of grace there has to be an object of God's wrath God's justice has to be shown to be right you can't take that out of the gospel it, it, if you do it ceases to make sense but not just only justice but also mercy mercy for those who call on him for, for salvation. How can justice and mercy kiss one another? As another Old Testament prophet says, how can they exist in the same place? Well, only through the death of the Lamb. Mercy for those who call on him for rescue, those who do hear the clucking of the mother hen, as it were, and say, come, quick, flee. The serpent is at large. Come to me for rest and protection. They are the ones who find mercy. And what is it makes it all work? It's faith, isn't it? Faith is, if you like, the operating system of the kingdom. Faith is what makes it all work. Faith in what God has said and belief that he will do 
that Jesus will do what he has promised. It couldn't work without faith. So we may call them different things, but we still need the prophets and sages and scribes of the messengers of the covenant, and they still need to be faithful messengers and not hypocrites and fools. Because we're still awaiting the return of the victor when we shall say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus promises us struggle and it's still true as it was then that those who faithfully proclaim the word of the Lord will be subject to scorn and sometimes worse than that. But we can sing nevertheless because we know that the victor is coming. We can sing away with our sorrow and fear. So let's sing hymn number 966.